and this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the Retail Dive team, thought leaders, and executives. Just over a decade ago, then upstarts like Warby Parker, Bonobos, and Birchbox started the first big wave of digitally native brands selling direct to consumer. These companies each narrowed in on a niche segment be it eyewear, menswear, or beauty, and disrupted traditional players in the space with a digitally-minded model that focused on customer engagement, convenience, and experience. Over time, these startups have now grown into full-fledged companies that are building out stores and grabbing significant market share. They're also the mentors to a younger wave of digitally native brands that think much differently about brand purpose, customer engagement, and growth. I wanted to learn more about how executives running these kinds of brands think about the industry and their place in it. So I went up to New York to speak with Maggie Winter. She's the co-founder of Air, a women's apparel brand incubated by Bonobo's founder, Andy Dunn. Straight out of college, Winter got her start working for the merchant prince Mickey Drexler at J. Crew. Now, four years into her own business, she said she still hears Mickey's voice in her head telling her to, quote, go where the puck is going. In her view, it's going toward a more inclusive and sustainable place. Before we dive into our interview, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Support for Retail Dive's conversational commerce comes from Synchrony. Whether you're working forward to new retail experiences or just a better way to understand customers, Synchrony's data, analytics, and insights can help guide the way. Learn more at Synchrony.com. All right, let's dive in. Today, I'm broadcasting from New York City, where I'm at the headquarters um, in shop of four-year-old women's seasonless apparel brand, Air, which stands for all year round. I'm here with Maggie Winter, the co-founder and CEO of the brand. Hey, Maggie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm very happy to have you on the show today. Air is a really interesting brand that I think symbolizes the next generation of digitally native brands that are going direct to consumer to customers and starting to open up shops and get a physical presence as well. Um, so today I want to break down exactly how you build something like this. You know, how you get it off the ground, what are the challenges of scaling the business, and what is different today in the retail environment? So first, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about yourself and how you got into retail and fashion in the first place. Sure. Um, as you said, AIR stands for all year round, and we are part of a new generation of brands, sort of uh, digitally native vertical brands 2.0. Um, after the Warby Parkers and the Bonoboses, there's another wave of brands that we've seen emerge in the last half decade, um, and AIR belongs to that generation. My start in retail was pretty <laughs> inauspicious. I started inadvertently, really, with a small t-shirt company in college. It was teeny tiny, but it was the first time I sort of registered my tax ID and so wholesaled to boutiques. I went to school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which is where I met one of my co-founders 17 years ago. We never would have imagined that we would go from being classmates to best buds to business partners. And in fact, 
uh, I have four, I have, there are four of us co-founders and we each come from complementary backgrounds in the fashion industry. So I come from a background in merchandising, who knew that little t-shirt company would turn into a job interview at J. Crew's corporate headquarters in 2005. But that was my very first job out of school, was working for Mickey Drexler, the Merchant Prince, arguably the best education any person who is interested in the business side of retail could have had in the last century. He's amazing. Mm -hmm. I worked for him for about eight years. Um, and my business partner, Jack Cameron, comes from design. She and I met at Madewell in its earliest days when that was sort of a startup within a big company. Uh, she was the first denim designer at Madewell. And Max, I mentioned, she was uh, a really good friend from college who became um, our business partner in Launching Air. Her background was PR and marketing. And then our fourth co-founder, Zandi Rich, comes from a finance uh, and business development background. So the four of us had all spent time really established big retailers, J. Crew and Calvin Klein, H&M and Theory, uh, big companies doing you know, billions of dollars in, in revenue and massive distribution. Uh, that said, after about a decade in the industry, we saw that it was changing really rapidly. Um, it was evolving very quickly, and we wanted to be a part of leading that evolution. So you were at J. Crew for about seven years or so doing merchandising, and you, you worked directly with Nikki Drexler. I'm, I'm curious, you must have taken so much away from that that you've has shaped the way that you've created this business. Well, the coolest thing was, Mickey's office wasn't uh, four walls and a door. He had a giant desk. Mine was one of the first desks off of Mickey's uh, corner. And so for four years, I didn't just hear Mickey um, as the boss. I, I heard him day to day, you know, running the business, having conversations, making decisions, talking to all different parts of the company. And it was my first job out of school. So to me, that was all I knew. That was totally normal to have this brilliant, you know, genius mind, um, total access, externalizing everything, and you're just, you know, typing away, listening. <laughs> and Mickey's famous for his loudspeaker system, where he would call in from anywhere in the country, any J. Crew store in the country, anywhere in the world, really. Um, and it was great because it oriented everybody, the same conversation, the same goal, the same initiatives, the same discovery, the same priorities. But I guess I had one better, which I got is I got to hear Mickey all day, every day. You know, I don't even know that he knew that he was teaching the entire time. But for me, it was the best education. And I still hear his voice in my head every day. Is there one thing that really sticks out to you that you learned from Mickey and that shapes how you look at retail and fashion? Oh, yes. Everybody who has uh, worked under Mickey, whether it was at The Gap or at J. Crew, could recite um, the Mickeyisms. I think the one that probably will never leave me is go where the puck is going. Um, you know, anticipate the trend, be there before the customer's there, think like a customer, think for a customer, but go where the puck is going. You, you were right there at the beginning of Madewell um, working in denim. Did you fall in love with denim in particular? The person I fell in love with at Madewell was our customer. You know, our customer at J. Crew was an older woman, and with Madewell, we had the ability to talk to a customer. Um, that I could identify with really closely. Jack and I both were 26, 27, 28 years old at the time we were working at Madewell. We were very close in age to um, the customer. Actually, I guess we are a little bit younger than that. We were very close in age to the customer that we were merchandising and designing for. And so when I had the opportunity to create a brand from scratch, I, I think naturally um, sort of thought about 
the customer who was a few years ahead of me. Um, and Jack and I are the same age, Max same age, Zandy same age. So mm -hmm. I think that we all belong to this generation that's really particular. I always describe us as belonging to the last generation that learned cursive and the first generation that learned code. <laughs> I, I you know? actually, like, yeah, I resonate with that. <laughs> right? Like there's this um, moment where you have a wonderful legacy and tradition of expertise. And then you also have, oh my gosh, the world is changing and it's a brand new frontier and we can be we can create anything we want. We have all the tools, we have all the experience, we have all the expertise, we have all the knowledge, but we also have the freedom of possibility. And we all belong to this generation. And it's funny, Jack and Max and I, at the time that we were beginning AIR, we were 29 years old. Uh, and over the past five years, we have become our average customer, our typical co customer. You know, our typical customer is 34 years old and we have grown into her. Now we've grown a couple years past her, but, uh, <laughs> but it makes it all the more fun when you're creating product for a customer who you understand intuitively and who you identify with. Yeah, so you created Air a couple years ago now. Tell me about the ideation phase and you know how it came together in the first place. Absolutely, so in that sense of go where the puck is going, I think it was pretty obvious, I know uh, to me, I was not unique in this, but it was pretty obvious to me six years ago that the puck was going uh, online. And that in order to build a truly resilient brand that was gonna have lasting power for the next generation, we needed to be uh, digitally fluent. And so Air.com launched in 2014. We were given the opportunity to create the brand um, by Andy Dunn, who's an amazing visionary entrepreneur, investor, um, one of the best creative thinkers I've ever met. And he had uh, experimented with one of the very first, creating one of the very first digitally native vertical brands with Bonobos, a beloved brand um, in menswear space. And he wanted to translate all the learnings they'd accumulated over the past half decade into uh, a, a new brand for a different audience. And Andy correctly, I think, identified authenticity as something that is um, vital and impossible to fake. And so he wanted to hire um, founders who uh, really authentically mission-driven, identify with the customer, have a, a sense of what where there's opportunity in the market. He didn't want to manufacture something. Um, and th I think that was, I have so much respect for him for making that choice. Um, and that's what gave us the ability to launch AIR. It's interesting too, like one of the biggest trends we're seeing right now. There's two fastest growing categories in apparel include athleisure, of course, and the other one, uh, it's very interesting to me, is affordable luxury. Hmm. Okay, what, like, is, what do you mean by that? Well, so affordable luxury, right, is a price point and a demographic, but it's also something that's changing. The definition of luxury is changing. I would argue that today, luxury is not just about a label and a logo anymore, but it's more about control over time. Time is now the most precious commodity. Convenience is probably a value um, greater than designer label or logo. Um, and so finding ways to create value for our customer through efficiency and investment and value is, is something that we think about a lot. Um, you know, so you look at how people are living, how people are shopping, and people aren't necessarily investing in moments anymore in the way that we used to. Look at occasion dressing, it makes a lot more sense to rent there. You look at the secondary market for a designer. Where it makes sense to invest is in something that's gonna be functional, that you're gonna use over and over and over again. And 
I think that uh, you're seeing a lot of shifts in in that space that what that affordable luxury premium space represents. Along with that, of course, seasonlessness is which is the core of air. Exactly. Right? That's that's yeah. what air stands for. Air stands so what does that mean? Around. Seasonless. Okay. Well, think about it. Think about it like you think about technology, and that's sort of how we we approach product. Probably more like a technology company would approach product launches than a clothing brand. And we think about how one item can create value in a customer's, in a user's life over and over and over again over time. So if you walk into one of our stores, we're, we're chatting right now in our Soho shop, you look around and there are only about 25 products in the whole store, but each of those products is designed to fill multiple uses in a busy woman's life. Uh, it's got to traverse many seasons, different stages of life, different ages, uh, different weather conditions, um, and it's meant to last a really long time. It's, and of course, same as you might update your technology uh, every couple of years or so, it will make sense to update your wardrobe. It doesn't, it, it doesn't live without ever evolving, um, but it's, it's a much longer life cycle than traditional retailers have, have, have seen. You know, it's not about delivering new product every four or six weeks and marking down the old and replacing it with a brand new idea at all. Think about food, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like apparel trends sort of a little bit follow food trends. Okay. Like, okay, you know, go with me. On this <laughs> think about, um, think about... The Cheesecake Factory. Okay, yeah. The menu at the Cheesecake Factory is like a book. It's enormous. It's enormous. There's, there's no way you've seen everything on the menu. you probably, <laughs> if you haven't unsubscribed from their email list, you probably still subscribe to a few brands that launch um, a new season with 477 new styles added. You know, Check them out all out today and everything is on sale because you got to get rid of the old stuff because the new stuff's coming in. And then sort of in the earlier part of the 21st century, the early 2000s, you had a movement in reaction to that that was really item focused. The meatball shop, Shake Shack, you know, the cupcake boom of the early 2000s, mm -hmm. where you had companies, brands uh, built on one item, item dominance, and it allowed you to go scale your raw goods and uh, really secure um, market share in a particular vertical. We've seen those things happen in apparel too. We've seen it go from uh, the giant mass fast fashion, here's the giant drop, and even vertical retailers that we grew up with have uh, have fallen into that you know, trap, I call it a trap, to churn and burn mentality. Um, it gives the illusion of choice. It's also terribly wasteful, not very sustainable. And then we saw it go to this item dominance, Crocs and Uggs and their whole, uh, that whole evolution. And then there's something else, you know, to today. I, I think of our brand as being like sweet green for apparel where <laughs> the, the chic fast casual totally there's you have you have a selection of ingredients they're all really thoughtfully sourced and considered um and they how they work in combination is up to you but you know that you will leave every time feeling satisfied feeling good about your purchase feeling confident comfortable feeling like you did something good for yourself and um, it's a considered purchase. Uh, it still allows the customer to make choice, but there's a lot of editing going into it. There's also um, the inclusion of uh, brand values. And that's something that's very different now than it was when I was first starting out um, my career. 
it used to be that access was controlled by media and by wholesalers, by distributors. And now you can tell a story and you can sell product directly to the consumer. Um, In fact, it's critical. I mean, yeah, we're seeing yeah. nowadays with a lot of young brands that are just a couple of years in that like five to 10 year mark where brand and core values are so right. important, especially if you're targeting younger demographics, maybe like Gen Z, millennials, young Gen Xers. Yeah, you think about what are the reasons to buy something, especially apparel today. There are three reasons to buy something. Price convenience and uh, exclusivity. Price and convenience are owned by Amazon. Mm -hmm. So exclusivity, which is brand, matters. For all of us who are operating today outside of Amazon, maybe someday we won't be. I don't think someday we will be operating outside <laughs> of Amazon, but for now we are. We have to create something else. We have to create equity through brand. Brand matters, and that's something um, that I believe is only going to increase in the coming years. So I want to talk a little bit about how you created this brand. Um, you mentioned that you were incubated by Bonobos, learned a lot from Andy Dunn in the beginning. And after about two years, the company split off on its own. And I'm curious what that moment was like. Um, the spin out was, for us, it was really challenging and it was really liberating. Even when we did our, our angel round of funding, we had investors like Stephen Allen, you know, who has, who created one of the best sh shops on Elizabeth Street when I first moved to New York. It was a must-stop place. The plaid shirts and cute bloomers, and it was a teeny tiny space where you felt um, the, the brand come alive and come through. We had investors like Stephen Allen. We also had investors like uh, Haley Barna, who co-founded Birchbox, and like Andy, was part of a new wave of retailers creating a completely different and digital experience for a, a modern woman. And, and it gave us an opportunity, I think, to widen our network and expand our community to include experts um, and entrepreneurs alike. And for us, that was transformative. It also allowed us, uh, it forced us really, to get serious about why we were doing this, what we wanted to create, who we were doing it for. Two of the very first decisions we made as an independent company were to invest in creating a uh, much more sustainable gene. So finding a solution to the water consumption uh, problem of creating denim. We, we were able to find a laundry in LA that could create a beautiful gene. And, and they, they were able to do it uh, by using less than a cup of water to wash the gene. Which is and, and by comparison, what does normal gene take? Normally, denim takes thousands of, truly thousands of gallons of water per wash cycle. And so it's one of those things where it's a very expensive alternative. We needed to charge more for the gene. The gene cost us uh, almost twice as much to produce as a regular gene. And um, it's because there isn't as big a market for that product. So we want to create one, even though uh, even though it's more expensive for us, even though we will absorb a lot of that cost in the margin and the pricing of the product. That's something that we want to invest in learning about. Another thing that we wanted to invest in was creating a truly premium plus size gene. It's available upstairs in the store right now. It goes uh, from size 14 to 24. We are so proud of it, and it's only the beginning of, uh, of a project that we've been working on for the last five months to offer uh, way more inclusive sizing in our best-selling product. This is that, that idea of, okay, now we're independent. No one owns our decisions but us. What is the world that we want to live in? What does it look like? 
and these aren't the shortcuts to profitability. I don't think they're um, how we will get rich quick, but they feel like uh, a modern brand absolutely should be doing every one of these things. These should be table stakes. They shouldn't even be newsworthy, really. Um, but, you know, I guess it's going back to what Mickey said. We want to go where the puck is going. We believe the puck is going to a place that's inclusive and that's sustainable and that's thoughtful and considered. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, we're sitting in the Soho flagship store, and I know um, Air started out with pop-ups and then decided to have permanent stores. So tell me about that journey and just how you think about physical stores. Well, you got to crawl before you ball, <laughs> and you really have to do that when you're at a startup. Um, so from the day that Air.com launched, we had a place where you could come try on jeans and we would fit you, and it was in our, in our office, in our studio. We engineer our jeans to fit you whether you're five feet tall or six feet tall we do extra long we do extra short and in fact most of our sales come from an inseam that's two inches shorter than the standard um, and so we've always known that it's important to try a product on in person then we decided okay we're gonna have we're gonna experiment with re with a retail space at that time we were not spending money on marketing in a big way hardly at all we decided okay we have this much money to spend. We're going to spend it on acquiring customers through a store instead of through digital ads because we believe that we invest in great product and the best way for a customer to believe that is not through a glossy image on a digital screen. It's through uh, putting on her body, stepping out of the fitting room, feeling 10 times better than she felt walking in. We saw it as a marketing investment. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we created um, a really small space. It's the size of a New York City studio apartment. Uh, it's in Soho because we don't have a big marketing budget. We choose to invest most of our cash in product development and in really great materials. So that meant we weren't going to be a destination-based location. We had to be discovery-based. We had to be somewhere that had the foot traffic and the local clientele to support a brand like this. And it has been transformative to our business in the same way that spinning out changed us um, because it let us interact with our customer literally every single day. And for the first year, we just learned. We learned every single day. We have um, focused more and more and more on a product around the, the women that we've seen come into the store. And it also became a prototype for us that we could repeat. We just opened our second permanent location um, on Abbott Kinney in LA. Very similar idea, it's a, it's a small space, it's less than a thousand square feet, there are only about 25 products, so there's not a ton of stuff in this store. Um, and it is in a high foot traffic location, very discovery based. Um, and that for us has been wonderful. So before we go, I wanna know, you know, what's next for AIR? And also how you see your company fitting into what seems to be an, another generation of the Bonobos and the Warby Parkers that kind of really got direct-to-consumer going? You know, life is changing really rapidly for women. And how we are living every day, the things that we're doing in a day, and uh, the how we're dressing for those days is changing. Truly, it's about time. It's about time for a brand like ours. And it's also literally about time. It's about saving us time. It's about giving us back control of our time. So the idea of creating an outfit of the day, disposable fashion, fast fashion, dressing for somebody else, dressing for an imaginary camera, doesn't apply to most of the women I know. You know, we're leading busy lives, whether we are uh, parents or executives or just 
trying to uh, get through the week and run errands and and um, make it to till Friday afternoon. All the women I know are really busy, purposeful, smart, um, and they deserve quality product that's considered, that makes their life a little bit easier, that makes them feel confident and comfortable and like their best selves. So she's the woman we have in mind. And we know that she doesn't look like she's looked in all the advertising that we've been served for our whole lives. You know, so we want to create a better experience for as many people as we can without compromising on really high quality product. So for us, the initiative is product for, for more people, um, and we want to be in more places. It's great. Online, air.com, open 24-7, never sleeps, no matter where you are in the country. Stores, we would love to show up uh, in a lot of other neighborhoods, and not just in the big cities, because we know there are strong, smart women everywhere who deserve really great product, and we want to meet her everywhere she is. So, uh, you know, world domination, but <laughs> first we're focusing on uh, this air.com yeah. and our Soho store, our LA store, um, and getting to know uh, getting to know women who are building the future. Great, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest news and trends, subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. And stay tuned for more episodes. Next up, I'll be speaking with Walmart's Tom Ward, who is the Vice President of Digital Operations for Online Grocery and Last Mile. We'll be talking tech, grocery, and everything in between. Until next time, I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.